Well, good evening and welcome back. As we close out Life's Big Questions, God's Big Answers, you've got the outline for tonight. We're going to take a look at did Jesus really exist and rise from the dead. We've looked at a number of different issues and there's many more. So if you're interested in apologetics or defending the faith, I can give you other titles of books to read, uh, more information on that if that's of interest to you. This evening, as you take a look at our last topic, it's the most essential one because it points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and we talked about this in the very first session during the Q&A. This information that you've received is not going to save anybody. Information never saves anybody. All right? God, on Judgment Day, is not going to ask for your transcript. He's not going to see what grade you got in a religion class or a Bible class, all right? confirmation class. He wants to know, do you have a relationship with him? Do you know who he is? Is he your Lord and Savior? That's what saves. And that information that you've received is what Dr. Angus Manuj at Concordia University, Wisconsin, in our philosophy department calls pre-evangelism. What we're doing is pre-evangelism. We are talking to people who are skeptical, who have legitimate questions, and this information is essential. It's important. It's not to downplay it, but it won't save anybody. So you could, you could hand this sheet of paper to someone, and it's not going to save them. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to convict them of their sin and bring them to a relationship in Christ, making them born again. So information is not the key, it's transformation. And that happens by the power of the Spirit. But God is using us, and you heard that in church today, God is using us. God works through means. He works through means. And so he's using the word spoken through Pastor Jonah this morning, or you when you share the word with people, God the Holy Spirit moves through means, the word and sacrament, and helps people understand the truth. And that's what transforms them. So this information is important, but understand its limitations. It ultimately won't save anybody, all right? You've got uh, the outline there. We're going to pray, and then we'll take a look at our last question. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the freedom in this country to gather like this, to open your word, to look at it, but also to look at the evidence that you've left behind, that we can understand that this is true. Lord, we believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, and there's evidence to corroborate what our faith shows us. We thank you for that, Lord. It's not a blind faith. It's faith that rests on the truth, the reality of your creation and your redemption and your sanctification for us. Lord, we pray a blessing on tonight. We pray for new insights by the Spirit. We pray that Jesus is lifted up and glorified and that we'd be your people transformed to continue to go out and share the truth in love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take a look on the screen, um, there's information in the, the first bulleted point that talks about the, the generation just before Generation Z. Our first session, we talked about Generation Z, those born between 1999 and 2015. And so millennials, the generation before, have a, a large percentage of nuns, 30% are nuns, so they don't believe that God exists, or they question that God exists, or they have no religious affiliation, all right? Now, Generation Z has even more, 35%. But millennials have a large percentage, and there's 30% of them that are in that none category, and there's great skepticism. So George Barna and the Barna Research Group has polled millennials who are in the none camp, specifically the atheist camp, and what you find is this. When you ask them, what do you think about the Bible? Half of them say, it's just a story. 
this is just a story. It's not true, right? And, and some so, go so far as to say it's a fairy tale, right? This is just fairy tale, all right? So we could talk about Cinderella or Jesus, and we're talking about the same content. It's just a fairy tale. That's simply not the truth. And what you're going to need to do in an ever-growing skeptical society is to help them point out there's evidence outside the Bible that Jesus of Nazareth walked planet Earth. This is not Cinderella. This is not Spider-Man. This is not Mr. Spock from Star Trek. These are not mythological, fairy tale, or fictitious people, Jesus of Nazareth walked planet Earth. There's evidence outside the Bible for him. So when you help people understand that, it's information, but they still need to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. But for the skeptic who goes, oh, I think it's just fairy tale theater, ah, well, it's, it's not, all right? If you take a look on the, the board, we, we, we've drawn the timeline before, and, and I like a timeline just to understand where we are in God's big story, all right? What some people call history or his story. What's history? It's his story. He made us. He began with two people, Adam and Eve. Eve's called Eve because she's the mother of all the living, all right? And so where did we come from? Well, from these people. And eventually, down the road, about 2,000 years later, again, ballpark figure, God takes a man, Abram, and says, from you, there's going to come a blessing to all people, all right? You're going to have a land, and you're going to have a great nation, the people of Israel, and ultimately all nations will be blessed through you. It's the promise of Messiah. Messiah comes, and there are hundreds, or there, there, there are dozens of messianic prophecies, and so that's a whole study in and of itself. So Jesus walks the planet, and here we are in 2019, and we believe even though we've not seen, but we believe by the power of the Holy Spirit God working through means, brought to the waters of baptism, God working through means, the sacrament of baptism. Maybe someone shared the truth with you and God the Holy Spirit brought you to faith. But as that's happened, ultimately this will all come to an end. Someday there will be a judgment day. There will come a terminal point. Some generation will be the last generation on planet Earth. And they will see unprecedented things. And that's a whole study in and of itself. And then Jesus Christ will come back. And then judgment day will ensue, and you're either saved or unsaved. You're either the sheep or the goats. The sheep, the believers, the goats, the unbelievers. There's only two types of people on the planet. And to understand the reality of that is what drives us. Why do we share Jesus today? To make a bigger heaven tomorrow. My friend Steve Book, Dr. Steve Book, who teaches at Faith Lutheran in Las Vegas, he says we intentionally are depopulating hell. We intentionally share Jesus Christ here at Faith Lutheran in Las Vegas. We want to depopulate hell. We share Jesus today to make a bigger heaven tomorrow. So when you understand what's our great commission, our great mandate, this, this order that, that God's got for us, you <laughs> go out and make disciples. How do you do that? You go to them. You baptize them. And you teach them to obey everything. This picture at the bottom I read recently in a book, and I thought it was a great illustration. I always talk about God coming down, and normally if I draw a timeline, I'll, I'll draw God up in the sky, and then I'll draw an arrow, and Jesus coming down, all right? And this pastor made this illustration. He said, instead of thinking God coming down, God's always there. And every now and then, he surfaces, and you can see him. 
and he's interacting in time and space on the planet. So you can see the wavy line, right? Imagine an iceberg underneath the water. You could, you could sail over the iceberg. It's there. You just can't see it. But if part of the iceberg's sticking out of the water, oh, there it is, all right? And so I'd drawn some peaks along the way and tried to roughly correspond with the timeline. What happened in the garden? Well, God was right there, and he's walking with Adam and Eve. And one day he was walking, and they were hiding. And it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Where are you? They were hiding from the one that they communed with and they had fellowship with. And so he was right there. And he had to provide a Savior. And he said, there's going to come a seed of the woman. And, and women don't have seed. And so this messianic prophecy in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is going to come and it's going to crush the serpent's head, even though the serpent's just going to bruise his heel. And so it's this, this, this veiled beginning of this messianic prophecy. There's going to come a, an, a seed of the woman, Mary. And she's going to save us all, all right? God talks through Noah, Tower of Babel, and then I drew this big peak here with Moses. As I taught for 28 years in two Lutheran high schools, there were many times I had kids who would say things like this, why doesn't God just show us a miracle? Why doesn't God just do something and prove he's here? And I would say, he's already done that. He's already done that. So if you want God Almighty to put on a show, he did a show in Egypt. And he brought the noise with ten plagues. Boom, 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 boom. And if there's any question about what's going on, read in Exodus. God says through Moses, look, you, my people, are going to know. The Egyptians are going to know. And the whole world's going to know that I'm the true God. And there are Bible scholars who say all those plagues are intentional shots at Egyptian gods. My favorite one is the hail that comes down. It was directed toward Nut, the sky god. Nut had nothing. Ah! Okay, a couple of you are still awake. All right. So if they're all shots at those Egyptian gods, they had nothing. So when people go, man, if God would just do a miracle, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. Because after the ten plagues, where God just puts on a show, the Israelites are led for 40 years, and by day, God is right there in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you have any question about God's existence, all you have to do is look out your tent. There he is. Here's our divine nightlight at night. And when that cloud moved, oh, it's time to go. And when the cloud stopped, oh, well, let's camp here. And he's there, and they camp three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here, three on each side surrounding him. He's the center of their life. There's no question that he exists because he's right there. They can see it. If God would only do a miracle, he's done that. And read just the book of Numbers, the complaining and the rebellion and so when people go, well, if God was just doing a miracle, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. You'd believe for a little while, but just read the book of Numbers. You can see what people did when he's right there manifesting in front of them. It's our sinful nature. I don't want to do your thing. I want to do my thing. So time goes by, and there's more prophets, and there's more miracles, and I can't draw all the peaks. 
But eventually, God does it this way. Instead of, oh, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, I'll wrap myself in human flesh. And I'll walk among you for 33 years. For three years, from ages 30 to 33, I will do miracles. I will do signs and wonders. So there's no question. There's just absolutely no question. He's here. And that's why read the Gospels. If you've never read the Gospels, if you, if you need to start, start with Mark. It's the shortest one, 16 chapters. And get to know Jesus better. He does miracle after miracle. And God is manifesting. God and man. God, man. Right there. And what we're going to see tonight is, did he really exist? Is he Superman? Is this Spider-Man? Is this Mr. Spock? Is this Cinderella? No. There's evidence he walked the planet. And one day, he's coming again. And that's why you got to know this information. But you got to share law gospel, that there might be transformation by the power of the Spirit, right? I love Luke's gospel. He is not one of the twelve, all right? So when you read Matthew's gospel, he's one of the twelve. When you read John's gospel, he's one of the twelve. Mark is really Peter's gospel, Okay, so again, if you want to know more, I can tell you more. Luke is a physician, he's a doctor, and he's an evangelist. And you can read about him in the book of Acts. He wrote Acts as well. And what did he do when he wrote his gospel? First couple of verses, check it out. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, were from, the first, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have, watch this, carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. That is a great way to introduce a study in the life of Jesus. Hey, Theophilus, I want you to be totally certain about what you're going to read. I don't want you to have any doubt in your mind. Because you know what I did? I went and talked to eyewitnesses. And Roman scholars who know Roman history, they go, when you read Luke and you read Acts, Luke is spot on. He's a physician, but he's a spot on historian. He's dead on. These are the people. These are the events. These are the situations. And so what did he do? I did my homework. But I didn't make this up. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a story. Because I talked to the people that were there. And I wrote this down. So you would be certain. You'd be certain. Did Jesus really exist? Our first question, yes. Go look outside the Bible. And I've said this before. What I read in God's Word is what I see in God's world. What I read in God's Word is what I see in God's world. So when people go, ah, this is just a story. Ah, this is just a fairy tale. No, it's not. Well, how do you know? Well, let's look at evidence outside the Bible. Extra biblical evidence, all right? The Mishnah Tractate, written by Jewish people, has an arrest warrant for Jesus of Nazareth, all right? An indictment appears in the Talmud for Yeshu Hanatsri or Jesus the Nazarene. It says, quote, He shall be stoned because he's practiced sorcery and lured Israel into apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. Anyone who knows where he is, let him declare it to the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. This is an incredible arrest warrant. Take a look at it again. He shall be put to death by stoning. Fits what Deuteronomy prescribes. Why? Because he's practiced sorcery and lured Israel into apostasy. Let's deal with the last part of that. He led Israel into apostasy. What was he doing? He was leading them astray 
So they're getting off track in their faith. Away from Yahweh, he was a false teacher. So we're going to put him to death. And then he practiced sorcery. Notice what they're admitting. He has supernatural ability, but they don't attribute it to God. They attribute it to the devil. When you read Matthew 12, you're going to see Jesus come up to a demon-possessed man who cannot speak, and he will cast the demon out. Now, what was taught at the time was this. You've got to get the demon to name itself. Demon, what is your name? Read Luke 8 sometime. In Luke 8, what is your name? Our name is Legion, for we are many. And Jesus commands Legion to leave, right? By the way, read those demon possession accounts. They tell people who are in, within earshot who Jesus is. We know who you are, son of God. They tell everybody within earshot, that's the son of God right there. Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? They're telling everybody who can hear who he is. What's your name? Our name is Legion. Legion, I command you to come out. Now, you get to Matthew 12, the person can't speak. The demon has taken away their ability to speak. So Jesus casts the demon out. Read that in that gospel. The people freak out. They go, could this be the son of David? The religious leaders goes, it's only by the power of Beelzebub he does this. And Jesus says, wait a minute. If I'm the devil, why am I casting my own out? It's like if you're watching the NCAA tournament, you're not going to score for the other team. You're not going to fight against your own team. This doesn't make any sense. Jesus says, there's other people doing exorcisms. Are they of the devil too? You're treading into the territory of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Stop. They didn't want to admit what they were seeing. God is casting out this demon, right? So he's practiced sorcery. They're admitting he has supernatural ability, but they don't attribute it to God, they attribute it to the devil. So they go, look, if you know where he is, tell us. We're going to put him on trial. When you read Josephus, you're reading a person who's told us so much about the history of the Jews. He's a first century contemporary of Jesus. This is an incredible admission on his part, and here's what you got to understand. He's not a Christian. Josephus is not a Christian. He has nothing to gain. He's not trying to evangelize. But look at what he wrote. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. Incredible admission from an unbelieving Jewish historian. He says, look, there was this good man, and many people followed him, and Pilate killed him. He was crucified, and his disciples say he's alive three days later. Maybe he was the Messiah. I personally don't believe it. But I'm going to record the facts, and that's what truth is. Truth fits facts and reality. Dictionary definition of truth. In philosophy, it's the correspondence theory of truth. Truth corresponds to reality. The tribe of the Christians have not disappeared to this day. So he's a first century contemporary of Jesus. So he can talk about, well, yeah, these Christians are still around, right? Julius Africanus is a historian who's going to talk about two other historians, Thallus and Phlegon. We don't have their records anymore. They're gone. But he records, on Good Friday, Thallus and Phlegon were trying to explain why it got dark. 
They saw it got dark. So if you remember, from noon till three, darkness comes over the land. What in the world? So they've got an explanation. Thallus, in the third book of his histories, explains away this darkness as an eclipse of the sun, unreasonably as it seems to me. Unreasonably, of course, because a solar eclipse could not have taken place at the time of the full moon, and it was at the season of the Paschal or Passover full moon that Christ died. Later on, he says, Fliegen records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth. That's our 12 to 3. Manifestly that one of which we speak. Here's Julius Africanus going, hey, Thallus and Fliegen saw it got dark. They're trying to explain it's an eclipse. He goes, it wasn't an eclipse. Do you remember when the eclipse happened a couple summers ago? That did not last for hours and hours. And so he goes, look, this happened. They're trying to figure out there's evidence for what we believe is true. Tacitus, Roman historian, not a Christian. He's not trying to evangelize. He just records the reality of the situation. Christus, the founder of the name Christians, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition, that evil superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. What I read in God's Word is what I see in God's world. It's just a myth. No, it's not. It's just a fairy tale. No, it's not. Well, how do you know? Well, look outside the Bible. Years ago, there was an Italian atheist who was going to sue the priest in his town for preaching about Jesus when Jesus is just a mythical figure. His lawyer said, do not go to court over this. You will lose in the court of law. The evidence is stacked against you. Jesus walked the earth. He's not a mythological figure. We're not, talking about, we're not talking about a fairy tale. We're not talking about Paul Bunyan. We're talking about a real person. Lucian is the Jimmy Kimmel of the day, all right? He's the late-night comedian of the day, a satirist who likes to make fun of people. And he mocks Jesus, and he mocks Christians in this century. The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rights and was crucified on that account. Boom, boom. So here's this comedy act that he's got. He goes, these Christians, they worship a guy who's been crucified, right? You see, these misguided creatures, these Christians, start with general conviction that they are immortal from all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which is so common among them. And then it was impressed upon them by their original lawgiver that they're all brothers from the moment they're converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws all this they take quite on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. Hey, we got a great show for you tonight. So as that monologue is done, Lucian goes, this is ridiculous. These Christians are misguided creatures. They worship a crucified wise guy. He's dead. They think they're all brothers. They don't worship the gods of Greece. What a bunch of dopes. Pliny the Younger is a historian, again, not a Christian. In his area... There are people being persecuted. Nero, if you study history, Nero has this persecution against the church about 60 A.D., ballpark figure again, about 30 years after Christ has ascended into heaven. And there are historians who say because he tried to rebuild part of Rome, he torched arson, part of Rome, and then pinned the blame on Christians, this new religious group that was out there. And so when you read about the torture and the persecution of Christians, it's horrific. People being bound in wild animal skins and fed to animals in the arena. 
crucified, being lit on fire as they're bound to, to, uh, to stakes, having, having their bodies emasculated, having their bodies ripped apart, all these terrible things going on. So you can understand in this entry why some people say, I am not a Christian. Pliny the Younger wrote that he had found some people falsely accused of being Christian. Upon investigation, they summarily, quote, cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. So there are some people, you're a Christian. No, I'm not. And they would curse Christ because they didn't want to be shown to be on his team because they weren't, didn't want to suffer. He says, however, the real Christians were simply guilty of the following. Quote, they asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. Isn't that interesting? What were they guilty of? Well, they went to church. <laughs> They sang in the morning. It's what we do. We've been doing this for the last 2,000 years. This is what we do. We get together on Sunday because he rose on a Sunday, and we commemorate that, that he rose from the dead. And we sing songs to him because he's, he's God. He's God-man. He's Jesus. And he saved us. And what did we promise, he says? What did these Christians promise? Not to commit crime, but to not do wrong. <laughs> they wanted to walk and be like their rabbi. They wanted to be just like their Savior. If you put it all together, and I just gave you a couple, if you put it all together, Miami University history professor Edwin Yamauchi summarizes it like this. These are non-Christian sources. They've, no, they've got no skin in the game. They're not trying to evangelize. They're just telling you, okay, this is what these historians are saying. First to second century, right? So Jesus' contemporaries and then people right after. Recording that Jesus was a, a teacher from Nazareth, lived a wise and virtuous life, he had enemies who admitted he did unusual feats they called sorcery. He was crucified in Palestine under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar at Passover time, being considered the Jewish king. He was believed by his disciples to have been resurrected three days later. He had a small band of disciples that multiplied rapidly, spreading as far as Rome. These disciples denied polytheism, the worship of many gods. We're going to worship Vulcan and Jupiter and Hera. No. Lived moral lives and worshipped him as God. I don't know if any of you read um, uh, the, the book by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. Anybody read Da Vinci Code when that came out? Okay. That, that shook so many people. It was a work, work of fiction, but it shook so many people. Oh, Jesus got married. Jesus had kids. Jesus was just a man. They didn't start calling Jesus G, uh, the Son of God until uh, the Council of Nicaea in 365 A.D.? No. No, that's just factually wrong. And so you could look at these and, and, and other citations from historians. They were calling him God from the minute he walked the earth because there was something different about him. If you take a look at the back side of the sheet, C.S. Lewis is on the screen. Have any of you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay, seen the movie? All right, yeah. So if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, here's a college, a university literature professor and a Christian who's a defender of the faith, an apologist. And so when you have people who go, this is a myth, this is a story, well, listen to this perspective from a literature professor who goes, if this is a story, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John invented a brand new literature genre, a literature type, if this is just a story, because no one had ever written anything like this before. The other option is, it's just flat out true, right? Take a look at the quote. Another point is that on that view, you would have to regard the accounts of the man, Jesus, as being legends. Maybe these are just legends, all right? Now, as a literary historian, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I've read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They're not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of the Platonic dialogues, Plato's dialogues, there are no conversations that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth gospel, John's gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, synoptic gospels of the same vision. Synoptic means of the same vision. They're very similar. It's chronological and, 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 and for the most part. But John is different. And John seems to be writing later. And it's like, you know this. I'm going to give you the up-close-and-personal skinny on what was going on. And C.S. Lewis goes, other than Plato's dialogues, you don't have that level of dialogue in, in any ancient book. There's nothing, even in modern literature, until about 100 years ago, watch this, when the realistic novel came into existence. Huh? What do you mean? In the story of the woman taken in adultery, John 11, we're told, uh, in the story of the woman taken in adultery, we're told Christ bent down and scribbled in the dust with his finger. Nothing comes of this. No one's ever based any doctrine on it. And the art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is a purely modern art. Surely the only explanation of this passage is that the thing really happened. The author put it in simply because he had seen it. I love that. This is either a brand new literature style that no one on planet Earth had ever written about, realistic fantasy, or it just flat out happened, which makes a lot more sense. Because his point is, it's not until the last hundred years where you've had realistic fantasy where people add little pieces of detail that don't forward the plot at all. He goes, but you'll notice that in the Gospels. And they caught the fish, and there was a huge draft, and there was 168 fish, John 21. Why is that in there? Because it really happened. And John, a fisherman, goes, hey, we caught 168 fish. Thanks, Jesus. Now let's take a look at that second question. Did did he really rise from the dead? Yes. Well, how do you know? Look, even unbelievers knew about this. Saul gets converted on the road to Damascus, eventually becomes Paul. He's out preaching, he gets arrested, and then he gets dragged before King Agrippa. He's talking about the history of the Jews, and he's, he's doing fine until he gets to Jesus, and he talks about Jesus walked the earth, and Jesus did miracles, and Jesus died by crucifixion, and then he rose, and then someone interrupts him and says, Paul, your great learning is driving you insane. You're nuts. If somebody rose from the dead, give me a break, all right? And so this man is named Festus, all right? So Festus interrupts him. And Paul's response is this. He goes, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. 
Insanity is being out of touch with reality. If I tell you I'm Abraham Lincoln, and you go, no, you're not. I go, yes, I am. I was born February 12th. I can show you on my driver's license. No, you're not. But if I persist in that belief, if I insist in that belief, I am Abraham Lincoln, you're out of touch with reality. That's not true. So Paul goes, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, right? What I'm saying is true and reasonable. If it's true, it fits the facts. Truth corresponds to reality. And it's reasonable. He goes, this makes sense, all right? Now watch this. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. Look at what Paul's doing here. He's appealing to a hostile audience. This is an incredible defense of the faith. He goes, Festus, I'm not nuts. And the king knows exactly what I'm talking about. I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. This is common knowledge. The tomb is empty. Our lives have been transformed. Now, if you read the rest of this, and you've got to do this in Acts 26, King Agrippa's response is, you're trying to make me a Christian? And Paul's, yeah, <laughs> that's the idea. <laughs> that's why I'm doing this the whole thing. I, I'm a missionary. That's what we're all supposed to do. Because there's coming a judgment. And now, today is a day of salvation. And God has a person in mind that he wants you to talk to. And it's not by accident you're here and you're gaining this information, but the information is not going to save him. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to save him. And God goes, I'm going to use you like I used Paul. But you've got to go. You've got to open your mouth. You've got to be online. You've got to be in person. You've got to start talking. Because there's people who have legitimate questions. It's okay to ask questions. And you've got to have answers. Now, some people just don't believe it. They go, no, I still believe it, right? It's true. When it comes to the resurrection, there's people who say, I can explain it. Swoon theory. How many of you have heard of the swoon theory before? Okay, a couple of you have. Good. If you've not, understand this. Back in the 1600s, Venturini, a man named Venturini, came up with the swoon theory. Jesus didn't rise from the dead because he didn't die on the cross. The swoon theory says Jesus was hanging on the cross and he swooned or fainted. So he passed out and they took him off the cross and they put him in the tomb. He woke up. He rolled the stone away. He got past the guards and then he showed up to the apostles and said, I'm risen. But he never died in the first place, so it's really not a resurrection. It would be more of a resuscitation or a revival. There's a lot of problems with Venturini's theory. And it comes in about 1600s, right? What's the biggest issue? John 19. Remember, John is the only apostle who's there at the cross. Everybody else is afraid. And John says in John 19, blood and water came out of his side. Around my heart is a sac called a pericardium. You've got the same thing. If you have congestive heart failure, that sac, the pericardium, is filling with fluid. And now it's restricting the beating of the heart. And the doctor has to relieve that pressure, get that fluid off, uh, out of that pericardium. So what happens when you die? Heart stops beating. Pericardium fl- fills with fluid because our body's mostly water. What did they do when Jesus is on the cross? Seeing he was already dead, they don't break his legs like they do to the other guys, so they suffocate faster on the cross. They stick him in the side, and blood and water comes out. They pierced 
his heart, the pericardium. John 19. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Why is that gory detail in there? And it is a literal gory detail. Why is it in there? Hey, Venturini, I know you're going to lie to people in 1600. So one of my followers, John, in the first century A.D. is going to write about it because he's an eyewitness and this is exactly what happened. Why did he put that detail in there? Blood and water came out. Well, he was there and he saw it. So again, go back to C.S. Lewis. Did he just make up that little piece of irrelevancy? No, it actually happened. He just wants to tell people about it. Empty tomb theory, number two, is the theft theory. All right, raise your hand if you heard of the theft theory. Theft theory goes like this. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The disciples actually took the body, disposed of it somewhere, and then said, he's risen. Hallelujah. No. This is as old as Easter itself. And you can read about it in Matthew 28. What happens? The guards come back. They tell what happened. And then they're given a bribe. And they're supposed to tell people we were sleeping on the job when the disciples came and took the body. Now think about that for a minute. If you're sleeping on the job, how would you know who took the body? Okay? You ain't going to know. That's a different issue. Matthew 28, as old as Easter itself. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, a bribe, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole them away while we were asleep. If this, reports, if this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. They're talking about Pontius Pilate, the governor. Hey, if Pilate hears about this, that you were sleeping on a job, we'll keep you out of trouble. They should have been executed for sleeping on the job. So that's why you can understand those soldiers going, I'm not saying that. I'm going to be killed for not doing my job. Guard a corpse. How hard was that? Uh, the Roman soldiers were the greatest hand-to-hand combatters of the day. There's no way fishermen are going to be able to take them out. And so there's probably three, four guards there. And even if you bring 11, all right, because Judas has hung himself. Even if you bring 11, those, those soldiers, they're going to wipe out these fishermen and a tax collector and everything. Hallucination theory is the third empty tomb theory. Anyone heard of the hallucination theory? Now, this one goes like this. Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but the disciples thought they saw him. But it was all a figment of their imagination. Maybe it was a shadow. Maybe it was just something that they all were just imagining. Problem with that is Thomas touches him. Again, there's problems with a lot of these. We can, we can point to a lot of different scriptures, right? I love this painting by Caravaggio. I was a double major in art and theology, so I have a, I have a heart for, for art. And, and in this painting by Caravaggio, can you see what Jesus is doing to Thomas's hand? He's sticking it in his side. Thomas, you want to feel the pericardium? Because remember what Thomas said. Because he wasn't there Easter Sunday night. When the disciples tell him, we've seen the Lord, he goes, I ain't going to believe it until I can put my hand here and here. So a week later, Jesus goes, hi, Thomas, come here. Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. What's the adjective we have for Thomas? Doubting. I'm doubting Brad. We all have those moments where we wonder, is this really true? We all have these moments where we go, really? It's okay. Because do this, read Matthew 28, just before the Great Commission. Read Matthew 28. The apostles gather to where Jesus is going to ascend into heaven, and it says, some of them doubted. 
Thomas wasn't the only one who was like, really? They walked with him for three, three and a half years, and they had doubts. We all have those moments where we go, wait, I don't know, I don't get it, really? And that's why the Lord goes, it's okay, tell me about it. And what a blessing. We've got Grace Lutheran, church and school. We've got Lutheran high schools. We've got Lutheran colleges. We've got ministry coming out of our ears on the Internet. We've got all sorts of stuff available to us. And people want to help you if you've got questions. Final one is the fraud theory. How many of you have heard of this one? Ooh, this is a good one. For this, the skeptic goes, I don't want to listen to John 19. I don't want to listen to Matthew 28. I don't want to listen to John 21. I don't want to hear any of those quotes because they're all made-up stories. It's all a fairy tale. No, it's not. For this one, you've got to go outside the Bible. Fox's Book of Martyrs is one resource. You can look at Roman Catholic Church, historical records of the early church. All of the apostles, except for Judas, who hung himself, and John, who dies on natural causes, they all die a martyr's death. If they're lying, why would you die for a lie? If you know what the truth is, you're not going to die for a lie. If you read Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, an unbeliever trying to show that this is not true, he looks at all the evidence, he goes, it's true, all right? And, and, and you can see the same thing with other books that are out there where people go, I, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure about this. Lee Strobel, Case for Christ, I, I don't believe this. I'm going to prove it's not true. Investigative journalist for Chicago's newspaper. And, and, and eventually he comes to faith. He goes, it's true. The evidence is overwhelming. Lee Strobel talked to people regarding the issue of, well, would you die for a lie? No, all right, because you can get interrogators to break you, and so you'll spill the beans. You, you, you'll talk. Now, when you look at how these guys died, it's horrific. Peter's crucified upside down. Andrew on an axe. James is beheaded. On the screen is a close-up of Michelangelo's last judgment painting. So it's on the back wall of the Sistine Chapel, not on the ceiling. And Christ is coming down, and everybody, he's in the very center of the painting. Everybody above him is going up to heaven. Everyone below him is going down to hell. And right to Jesus' left is Bartholomew. And in one hand, he's holding a knife. In one hand, he's holding his skin. He was skinned alive. So Bartholomew will be the first one to go, look, you don't die for a lie. Because the minute the knife is going to be taken to your skin, you're going to tell people, look, this is what we did. We took the body. Days after the guards were gone, we got rid of it, and then we started telling people he had risen from the dead. We destroyed it by burning or whatever. They would sing like a canary to save their own skin, literally. The fraud theory doesn't work. In the end, here's what you and I have to understand. You're going to see incredibly offensive things written about Christ, the Bible, and you as you continue to live in a post-Christian culture. For some people, you are stupid, you're ignorant, you check your brain at the door when you go into the church. Really? It's simply not the case. Do you want to talk about the Bible's reliability? Would you like to talk about evidence for creation making much more sense than evolution? Do you want to talk about the existence of the supernatural, specifically demon activity? Do you want to talk about 
the reality of a global flood and the historical and geological evidence? Do you want to talk about the existence of dinosaurs and humans together? Do you want to talk about the existence of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead? I am not checking my brain at the door because it stands up to reason. There's evidence. It's intellectually satisfying. But most important is this. It's spiritually satisfying. Is this all that we are? We've got just a little time in the space-time continuum, and that's it? We get one ride on the merry-go-round of life, and that's it? Is that all that this is all about? And God goes, no, child, I made you. I made you to live with me forever. Now, you didn't want that, but I've been coming after you ever since. I've always been here. And I've surfaced at times and made myself known in dramatic ways and in less dramatic ways. And one day I'm coming back. Because you know what? I love you. I'm crazy about you. And I gave up heaven so you and I could be together. It's intellectually satisfying, it's spiritually satisfying. How does John finish his gospel? Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It cannot be more clear than that. If you go back and read the Gospels, there's three times that we've got God audibly talking to his son. At the baptism, Matthew 3, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. So John the Baptist and everybody else being baptized can hear God talking, Jesus is there, and then the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. And the Trinity is right there. There's the first one. Read John 12, last week in Christ's life. Jesus goes, Father, glorify your name. God answers, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. John records. Now, some people thought that was thunder. Other people said an angel just spoke to him. So they heard it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, Peter, James, and John are there. John and Peter, when they write their epistles later, will talk about this. This moment where Jesus stood before him, before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became brilliant white. There was a cloud that enveloped them and then God audibly spoke. Listen to what he said. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now look at those last three words. Of all the things God could say about the God-man, Jesus Christ, he goes, listen to him. And that's what God is doing right now. He's going, child, would you listen to me? I want to spend time with you. I want to talk to you. And I'm talking to you right here. Spend time with me so you can make me known. That's what this is all about because one day it's over. And we'll either be the terminal generation that sees the end, 
or we will die, and our ride on the merry-go-round of life will be over. We have an opportunity to tell people the truth. Everybody's got questions. It's okay. We've got answers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth. By the Spirit, you've brought us to faith. You've given us this opportunity. And Lord, I pray that you would bless the students here, the parents here, the grandparents, the friends, everyone, that we'd understand the mission that you have for us. We thank you, Lord, because you've loved us and in the midst of our sin brought us redemption in Christ. During this Lenten season, I pray that we'd understand that our sin brought you to the cross. We thank you that in your love you've won and that you've made us more than, more than conquerors. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.